And so I want to open your, your Bibles up to John chapter 12. Starting at verse 37. Thank you, Lord. And let's, uh, let's pray together and ask for the Lord's blessing. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Lord, Father, we're just so grateful to be able to come and talk to you tonight, Lord. And Father, just seek your favor and your, your grace upon our lives, each one of us here, Lord, as your children. Father, you know who we are, Lord. You know our many failings. And Father, the great need that we have for your spirit to work in us and Father, to complete that work, Father, just as we, as we sang, Lord, that Father, your intent that our entire heart should be yours. And that is our prayer as well. And Father, so often we find ourselves in a situation where we are lacking uh, the initiative or the ability or the tools to hand parts of ourselves over. And so Lord, tonight we pray that as we hear your word, Lord, as we are witnesses of your truth, Lord, as we, your spirit bears witness with our spirit, Lord, that, Father, you would do that work in us, Father, that work that we cannot do, Father, that you would fulfill your purpose for us, Lord, and help us, Lord, bring us, Lord, to that purpose, that place that you've intended, and, Lord, reveal, Lord, your, your glory even in our lives, Lord. Father, use us as your servants, Lord. Give us, Father, a sense of your hand upon us and an urgency for these last days, even as we see the urgency in the life of Jesus in your word here, Father. Bless us. Draw us close to yourself. Father, we lift up our our friends and loved ones, Lord, who are just struggling with difficult times, those who've lost loved ones, Lord, those who are struggling with illness, Lord, and um, different therapies and uh, the tortures of medicine, Lord. Father, put your hand upon them. Encourage them, strengthen their hearts. Give them hope for the days to come. And Lord, use us as your servants as well. We love you and we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John chapter 12, verses 37 through 50. Tonight we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scripture. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Um, last week, uh, we again approached the, the last seven days or six days of the, the earthly ministry of Jesus. In John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He arrives in Bethany following the death of Lazarus, meeting briefly, briefly with uh, Lazarus's sisters, raises him from the dead maybe creating the biggest stir of his, his ministry, partly because of the nature of the situation, raising a man been dead for three days, and partly because of the proximity to Jerusalem. Jesus did a lot of crazy things, but the only things that Jesus did that really created a huge problem were things that he did in the proximity of Jerusalem. In John eleven fifty three, it says, Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Now, certain elements of the religious leaders had been plotting just that same thing since all the way back in John chapter 5 at the healing of the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, In John 5.16, it says, For this reason, the Jews uh, persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. 
And Jesus answered and said to them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal to God. And how I wish the Jehovah's Witnesses would figure that out as they read the same Bible, or at least the King James Bible. The difference now is that the particular faction of the religious leaders that are seeking Jesus' life are the chief priests and the council. And that is a significant difference. The end of chapter 11 tells us where Jesus and the disciples were during the time following the raising of Lazarus. John eleven fifty four says, Therefore Jesus no longer walked among the Jews. I mean, they knew full and well that the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him. Uh, they went from there into a country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. And there they remained with his disciples. This is not the Ephraim of the tribe of Ephraim. And there are a couple of differing opinions from commentators of where this place exactly, the city called Ephraim was, which tells us basically that nobody knows where it is. Uh, the one, one theory is it's about 20 miles away. Another theory, it's like a couple of miles from Bethany. But I mean, logically thinking, you were, if the whole idea was to lay low and get out of the traffic, that Jesus would probably be further removed from Jerusalem than just outside Bethany. You know, you, if you're really strong, you can throw a baseball to Bethany almost. Um, until, and actually they were in this place, Ephraim, from somewhere around January, the end of January, to about the end of March. And at which point they arrived back in Bethany for the first, around the first of April, six days before the Passover. So... In John, we miss out on a few things. Uh, well, actually, you know, the Gospel of John is not a synopsis of Jesus' life. So you miss a lot of stuff. But in this particular section, we're missing the trip up from Jericho, the conversion of Zacchaeus, parable of the talents, uh, healing a blind Bartimaeus. And you pick those up in the other three Gospels. In John 12, 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And they had this big dinner. It was publicly attended, which was common with a certain kind of Hebrew dinners where you would have a dinner and people could come and watch the dinner. They weren't really included. They didn't get to sit at the table. They didn't get to really participate as a guest, but they could attend the dinner. It was a public event. And this is actually the case uh, when Jesus goes to Bethany. Um, Mary anoints him. Mary of Bethany anoints Jesus for his burial. And then the very following day, we have the triumphal entry, which was 724,683 days before today. I just thought I'd look it up. <laughs> Not even a million days. 724,000 days back, Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem. This is according again to uh, Sir Robert Anderson and the coming prince and his whole uh, ideas, all of his mathematical calculations on the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9, and I don't see any reason to doubt him. Um, Jesus, at, at the triumphal entry in the process of this, Jesus and some others there present with him, hear an audible voice from the Father in chapter 12, verse 28. In, in verse 32, he references his death on the cross. If I am lifted up, speaking of his death on the cross. And it's very interesting because... This particular instance where Jesus references his death on the cross is the only place that you will find in any of the Gospels where Jesus references his death without mentioning the resurrection. Every other place in every Gospel where Jesus mentions his death, he always mentions the resurrection. That's very important and just interesting for this. Um, 
as usual, the multitude is asking Jesus for more detail concerning his meaning. And as usual, Jesus really doesn't give them much of a substantial answer. John 12, 35, Jesus said to them, a little while longer and the light is with you. Walk while you have light, lest the darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Jesus' purpose from the beginning is that people would become what he calls the children of light. From the beginning of the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, he has done everything to bring us to that end. And here at the beginning of this section of verse 37, we see the evidence of the hearts of men. And although disappointing, hard to reconcile, it's not surprising to the Lord as he had foretold this situation in, we'll see in the prophet Isaiah and we'll see in other places as well. Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture from verses 37 to 41 in revealing the rejection of men. Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture in revealing the conflict of men's hearts in verses 42 and 43 in identifying with the father verses 44 and 45 in identifying the purpose of God verses 46 and 47 and then finally by identifying the mechanism of God's judgment from verses 48 through 50 what has God's purpose been in the coming of Jesus to the world of men let's see how much time do you have John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And please notice verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You, can't say, you really can't separate those two. Not with a good conscience. Let's pretend for a moment that you live in a world that is entirely peopled with yardsticks. Every single conscious being in your world is a yardstick. Every one of them is desperately flawed, beyond repair, crooked, twisted, some shorter, some longer, all of them messed up. And into this world of crooked, beyond repair yardsticks, we're going to introduce one perfect yardstick. What would all the yardsticks do? I'll just leave you to think about that for a bit. But consider this. On the basis of objective truth, the introduction of a perfect yardstick is automatically the judgment of every other yardstick. All of them. They're all judged because of the existence of this one perfectly straight yardstick. The only exception, of course, would be as if there was some miraculous way to change all the other yardsticks into the image of the perfect yardstick. And that might only happen if the perfect yardstick was actually the creator of all the other yardsticks. Then he might have the power to change them. And again, in you know, a world of living yardsticks, I imagine they'd have to be willing. They'd have to ask for to be changed. And you understand, you know, crooked. they'd have to also understand that they were crooked to begin with. We don't live in a world of yardsticks, though, do we? Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture in revealing the rejection of men, starting in verse 37 here. Although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because 
Isaiah again said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. I don't know about you, but I always imagine in my mind that the answer to people coming to faith in Christ is a matter of convincing their minds. Now, I know that's not true, but when I'm talking to somebody, I kind of always fall back into that desire to persuade their conscious mind with evidence and facts and reason. And I guess part of that is because our minds are convinced. We are convinced. And we have all of this apologetic information floating around in our heads. And some of it we're just in love with. It's just fascinating to us, you know. And so we just can't resist the urge to be sharing that stuff with people who are looking at us like a dog with a new dish. Huh? What is the matter with you? The truth is, even in our lives, it did not happen to us in that way. If you are a believer in Christ today, you are a believer because God Almighty in eternity opened up your mind and introduced to you the truth of Jesus. Now, you had to be willing in some way. You had to actually make some kind of a request or another for the introduction. But God revealed himself to you in power through the Holy Scripture. You may have heard and seen all kinds of other evidence over the years, even miracles. You could have seen the lives of people. I mean, we've seen a lot of things that we can't exactly make sense of. It doesn't necessarily change our lives. However, in response to an obedient request, when God reveals himself to you, that will do it. That will do it. When you, when you ask God, you get on your knees, say, God, speak to me from this here book. And you start reading and all of a sudden he starts talking to you. All of the doubt kind of gets vacuumed out of your brain. And you're like, whoa, I'm in trouble. It's amazing. It really is. It always takes place with the word of God. Romans 10, 17 tells us faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. In verse 37 here, it says, although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe no more than the children of Israel coming out of Egypt in spite of all of the bizarre and amazing miracles, frogs flying from the sky, you know, or wherever they came from. I don't know. They had witnessed all these things. Hebrews chapter four, verse two tells us for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, meaning the children of Israel. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. And clearly the word of God is the issue that people here in Jerusalem had failed to receive. Just as we are encouraged in Hebrews 4.11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of the children of Israel's disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Man, that's wild. So it makes sense here to us that John quotes Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. 
Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In verse 38, the scripture is fulfilled and it had to seem at the time to the followers of Christ. They had to wonder, why are these people not getting it? Why are they not getting it? I mean, they were also distracted with the fact that they're in the middle of this huge political intrigue and they know that people are going to try and take Jesus' life and they're concerned about that and their own safety. And, but why did these people not get it? They had to wonder, what is going on? Well, they were about to find out. John makes the statement in, in verse 39, therefore they could not believe because again, Isaiah said, and he goes on here to quote from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, which is a verse that shows up all over the Gospels, all over the Gospels, specifically in reference to the Jewish people. He has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I would heal them. And again, important for us to understand, because if you take those scriptures out of context in places, you're going to walk away with the idea that God forcibly restrained people from understanding the truth. It is not so much that he has blinded or hardened them as much as their own rejection has actually done that work for them. Dr. John Gill said this, since God or Christ blind and harden, which they do, not by any positive act, but by leaving and giving men up to the blindness and hardness of their hearts and denying them the grace which could only cure them and which they are not obliged to give and which was the case with the Jewish people. Again, Dr. John Gill. Does God harden their hearts? Yes, he does. Why? You, you might well ask, why does he... Why does he not harden the hearts of those that are willing to believe? Because they're willing to believe. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 19 says, If you were willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Paul gives us a really interesting insight about the same idea in 2 Corinthians 3.13. He says, Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the end of what was passing away, and that is that Moses' face was glowing after being up on Mount Zion, or rather on uh, Mount Sinai. But their minds were blinded, for until this day that same veil remains in the reading of the Old Testament. They're blind, because the veil is taken away in Christ. A person has to be willing to invite Christ into his life, Get to that place. And if you have a doubt about that, read John 14. Three times in that chapter, he suggests, if you want to know where this is all from, be obedient to the words I've spoken to you and you will know. You'll find out. You will see. The obedience is a necessary issue. C.S. Lewis said this, if we will not learn to eat the only food the universe grows, the only food that any possible universe can ever grow, then we must learn how to starve eternally. God has provided a way. Take it or don't. We live in a world full of people, folks, that want that third option. Just to set the issue in, in proper context here, John mentions this one final thing in verse 41. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Wait a minute. Who saw whose glory? 
Isaiah saw Jesus. When? Well, verse 40 is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6. And what happens in Isaiah chapter 6? Let me read it to you, okay? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne high and lifted up in his train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings and he covered his, they covered their face, covered their feet and with two they flew. One cried to another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And who did he see? Jesus. He saw Jesus. That's what John is saying here. He saw Jesus when he said this. John is telling us that Isaiah is looking at Jesus in this passage and the men of Jerusalem may not have been impressed by the Lord, but certainly Isaiah was. Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture in revealing the rejection of men. The rejection of these people was, as so many are, very straightforward. There was no hypocrisy, no deception. They weren't pretending to believe anything. But not every person is that uncomplicated, are they? Some people were and are very conflicted because of how their, their understanding of Jesus and the demands that he makes upon the lives of those who follow him. And Jesus does make demands upon the lives of people who follow him. Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture in revealing the conflicted hearts of men. Verses 42 and 43. Verse 42, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So we have this statement about many of the religious leaders of the Jewish people. And then John makes the statement that identifies one of the conditions of their heart, the hearts of so many people that keep people from a surrender to God's purpose for their lives. Nevertheless, even among the rulers. So he's talking about the religious leaders, some of the Sanhedrin council. The Sanhedrin is a council that first started in between the Old and the New Testament, back in the time of the Maccabees, and continued on until 70 AD, and then sort of it, it evolved into something very different and moved away from Jerusalem for a bunch of reasons in 70 AD after the city had been destroyed. But it was the ruling council of the Jews. And at the time of Christ, it was made up of uh, 71 people, 70 elders, and then the high priest. Um, we know that, for instance, Joseph of Arimathea is a member, a prominent councilman. Mark 15.43 says, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God and taking courage, went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. We know he's one. Consider 23, 25 years in the future from this day where Jesus has made the triumphal entry and he's actually, this is his last willing public address to the people of Israel. 25 years in the future, um, the apostle Paul returns to Jerusalem and he's sharing 
with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem about the fact that he's gone to all these places, he's shared the gospel with all these Gentiles. Acts 21.20 says, And when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Now, I know the Jewish guys who said that to Paul were very excited to tell him that. But is that really the kind of compliment that God was looking for? Is that really a good thing? This is, Paul, Paul was sitting there with those guys in 56 AD. And it seems to be a wonderful statement. But keep in mind that 13 years later, there would be no church in Jerusalem at all. There would be no city of Jerusalem at all. The whole city would be devastated and destroyed and cast down by Titus and the Roman army. Could it be the 25 years after Jesus' statement here that the people of Jerusalem had the same problem that they had earlier? They were continuing being devoted to the law of Moses and Judaism. And they were not really following the Holy Spirit of God because it was not God's plan for Judaism and the church to come together and be a unit. Otherwise, God would not have destroyed the temple as he did, as he allowed. Back here in, in verse, the second half of verse 42 in John 12. Because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. The uh, theological term for that is weasel. That's what you call a weasel. And this is, this, again, this is something very different than the kind of commitment that Jesus is seeking when he presents himself as the fulfillment of the scripture before the people of the world. Jesus is looking for a kind of commitment from people that looks a lot more like his commitment to them, which is like carte blanche, you know, no bottom line, whatever you need. Jesus is looking for a kind of commitment from people looks like his commitment, one that is not diminished by the forces of this twisted and messed up world. A commitment that transcends the world, something we can only do with his help, with the help of his spirit inside of us. Here in verse 43, John gives us some simple insight on what the problem is. What was the real problem? For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now you might think that's kind of a no-brainer. And you'd be wrong, at least with a human brain. Uh, the value of God's opinion towards us is something that is very difficult for people to grasp. And it's not that we don't understand it hypothetically. We understand it in theory. God's important. People are not. What Tim thinks of me in 200 years is going to be pretty negligible. Whatever it is, good, bad, or indifferent. He has no idea who I am. God knows exactly who I am and his opinion is forever. I understand that. But does that mean that I'm going to be able to stand up and take the hit when the opportunity arises? Value of God's opinion toward us is something that, again, difficult for people to grasp. It's not that we don't understand it. It's a matter of priorities and understanding. Our priorities are confused because we do not understand. It would be easy to think that we don't share in this problem that, that would be also not very wise of us. Two basic things, as far as I can see. We don't understand who God really is. All we have is bits and pieces. You know, when the Holy Spirit shows you who the Lord is, you just start to cry right there. Every time. He could do it four or five times a day and you'd cry every time. You'd just sit there and go, oh Lord, I'm sorry. You know, I'm, you know it's humbling and it's 
amazing and it's beautiful and you're just overwhelmed, you know? It's amazing. We don't, we don't know who God is and not, not in the kind of specific detail that we really need to. And because of that, we don't understand who we are and we don't understand what we're doing here. Otherwise, we wouldn't do these dumb things that we do. Because of that, there really is just one reliable antidote to this problem, and that is to hear and to receive the words of God because the word of God to us, he sends forth, it will accomplish the thing that he has purposed, it tells us in Isaiah chapter 55. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture in revealing the conflicted hearts of men. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture in identifying with the Father in verses 44 and 45. Jesus cried out and he said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. Now there is a sense here, folks, in which any of the prophets of the Lord could make the statement in verse 44. He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. There's a sense in which you could say, but not the same sense in which Jesus makes the statement. A prophet speaks forth the word of God. Believing in the prophet is acknowledging the hand of the Lord upon the prophet and receiving the message and therefore believing in the Lord. Lord being the focal point. Jesus makes this statement. He is the object in view. He is the focal point. He is the object. Believing in the Father and believing in Jesus are inseparable, indivisible, and synonymous. And to make that point eminently clear, he adds in verse 45, He who sees me sees him who sent me. Notice that he doesn't say, He who sees me sees the Father, as he will later in John 14.9, the end of John 14.9. Uh, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Jesus identifies himself with the Father. His ministry identifies him with the Father. Listen to John 14.10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, he does the works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves which is really kind of pitiful because he's basically talking to the 12 apostles at this time and he's appealing to them. Believe, if nothing else, on the basis of the works. Sad testimony. And then Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 tells us God, who at sundry times in different ways, different manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, the upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He who sent me. Why doesn't Jesus say the Father? It may be, that he is on the Temple Mount. And as such, he's being considerate to the Jews because no Jewish person would say that in that place. He who sees me has seen the Father. He who sees me has seen him who sent me. 
You see, he's being considerate to them. And this, his language reflects that he's in that. He's got somewhere less than right around 24 hours to go before the crucifixion. There can be no doubt that any person who has heard him, heard his words, understands the meaning. They may not have understood it to the degree that he intended it. He, I mean, just a few minutes passed having the father speak to him in an audible voice. And of course, some of the people who were standing there thought it had thundered. And they would have been some of the people uh, who Isaiah spoke of from verse 40. Unfortunately, they did not understand. They thought it thundered. But some people heard an audible voice. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture as he identifies himself with the Father. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture in identifying himself with God's purpose in 46 and 47. In verse 46, he says, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my voice, hears my words rather, and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The purpose of God manifest chapter by chapter, verse by verse, one page at a time, as we take the word of God. If any person is truly willing to surrender to the Lord, he will make plain his plan for that individual, for the family, for the world of men, for the nation. For any person to say that the things that Jesus said, any other person to say these things, would be the most arrogant, self-centered, conceited, vain, not to mention they would be speaking out and out lies to say these words. For Jesus, the situation could not possibly be more different. He could not possibly in good conscience restrain himself from saying the things that he says. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. You know, and I really, I challenge you, especially as you read through the gospel of John, take time to examine the things that Jesus says because the things he says are crazy. They are crazy, like way off the chart. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Who are you going to listen to say that and not write them off instantaneously? But notice his disciples did not. Why? They'd been with him for three years. They had watched him. They had watched him. They had seen what he'd done. They were not, there was nothing that he could possibly say that would cause them to write him off or to discount the statements that he made, which are absolutely true. They knew he was not a vain man. They knew he was not an arrogant man. He was not self-promoting. In fact, Jesus went out of his way to try and chase people away from following him. When huge crowds would follow him, you know, he would jump up on a rock somewhere and say, all right, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciple. And people would go, wow, this is a hard thing to hear. Who can hear this? And many people would leave. Is that self-promotion? No, it's not. These guys knew him. They knew him. Unless you are willing to forsake everything, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you hate your mother and father, brother and sister, you cannot be my disciple. And only those people who, they're like, okay, 
I don't understand, but I'm here. I'm listening. I'm not, and this is what they did. This is exactly what they did. In reading, you know, in reading the Gospel of John, especially from verse 12, chapter 12 on, you get a sense of the urgency of Jesus. And um, I mean, part of it, of course, is that we know what's, what's, where this whole thing is going. But by this point in chapter 12, he knows that he's in the home stretch. He can see the finish line off in the distance. And it is like, you know, the end of every race. It is the hardest part of the race before him. But everything about him is geared to provide an opportunity, you know, a foothold for these people. These people are lost. They are lost, lost, lost. And they need, they need his help. And the only thing that can help them is hearing the word. And you've got to believe as he said these words, just, you know, 46 and 47, that somebody in that crowd got it. Somebody sitting in that crowd heard the thing that he said and it registered and it, and it, it jarred them and they thought, I need to think about this. I need to examine myself. Sometimes, you know, when you're sharing the gospel with a person on the street, there is a thing that, that takes place when you're sharing and you're looking for some indicator whether the person that you're speaking to is getting the message. Because a lot of times what you get when you're, yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, okay, well, um, oh man, I, I'm sorry, I gotta go. You, you, that's what you get. You know, all the body language is, oh, quit telling me about Jesus, stop, I'm in pain. I, you know, I can't leave my, gran- my girlfriend's in the store, I gotta wait here, but oh, you're killing me. And that's what you see when you're telling people about Jesus. And in your mind, you're thinking, come on, come on, here, let, get this, get this. You can do it, hear this. Can't even imagine what the Lord is going through. You know, the farthest thing from his mind is condemning these people that he loves. Second Peter 3, 9 tells us that, again, the Lord's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And, you know, we know that scripture and we say that, but do we really understand what that means from God's perspective? How broken he is at the, the loss of these people, all of them. How devastated he is. I mean, there's a part of people that want to believe that there's some vengeful pleasure that God gets out of seeing people judged and separated and suffering the consequences of their terrible choices. And it's so not true. It's so not true. You know, and we need, I need to know that because when I go out to talk to people about Jesus, I need to know how much he loves them. Only when I have that in mind, am I going to be any kind of a witness that he can use? So often, you know, in reading the scripture, we see the cruelty and foolishness of men. And these are things that the Lord sees, things that he sees in us when we think we're being well behaved. Uh, and in spite of all these things, his desire is by any means possible that we might come to the truth. And it, it is fascinating to examine the words of Jesus because there is always so much that we can't begin to understand. I mean, there, there's plenty that we can understand and take hold of it and put into practice and, and use more than enough to keep us occupied for the rest of our time here. But still, a lot of it is just way over our heads. And you have to be content to take the crumbs that fall from the master's table. You have to realize who you are and realize that, that basically that's what you're getting. You know, after some of the greatest... Bible teachers in histories say of themselves, you know, I'm just another blind beggar trying to lead other blind beggars to get bread. You know, and, and it is true. That's who we are. We're at his mercy. God help us. You know, you can be the most 
eloquent speaker in the world. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, people are going to leave empty. They're going to get nothing. But if, or you can be the most awkward, worthless, you know, nervous, terrible speaker in the world. And if God's spirit will use you, people will, they'll get what the Lord needs them to get. When God has spoken to you from the scripture, you're no longer walking around with a question mark over your head. You know, people, one of the problems with people is that they are smart and when they, are, when they are very smart, people start to imagine that if something is true, then they should be able to understand it. You know, I'm educated and I'm smart and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not speaking of myself, by the way, I'm neither. Um, but they really imagine that if you, if you tell me something that's true, I should reasonably be able to conceptualize it in my head and it should make sense or I will know that it is not true. Uh, you know, your your idea makes no sense to me, Dr. So-and-so. You're, you're an idiot or a liar or worse. So when God has spoken to you from the scripture, you're no longer walking around with a question mark over your head. You may not understand every detail, but that is part of the bargain. People, when, when I talk to people about what I believe, they really don't understand what I mean. Because people in the world believe things because they have arrived at a place where they've looked at the evidence and they think that X, Y, and Z is true. They've made an intellectual decision to think, I don't do that. I don't do that. God talked to me from this here book. And so now I believe what this book says. And the book says things I don't understand. I believe those things. And I'm willing to make a serious attempt to stake my life on the defense of those things that this book says because God himself has spoken to me from this book. I don't necessarily have evidence to back up everything that it says. I don't have any idea how the rapture is going to happen, how people are just going to disappear off the planet. I don't know if they'll leave their clothes. I don't know if their clothes will go with them. I don't know what's going to happen with the stuff in their pockets. I don't have any idea. And I don't really care. I don't care. I know that the rapture is going to happen Jesus talks about it. The Apostle Paul believed it. It's all over the place in the scripture. And I know men and women who believed in the rapture who were burned at the stake for reading the Bible in their own native language in the 1600s. And I'm not about to ignore that. You may not understand every detail. Part of the bargain God has spoken to you. You no longer have to appeal to the intellect of man. The more resolved you are to follow the truth of Christ, the greater insight you will have by God's spirit through the scripture. And again, I don't want you to think that I'm, you know, casting stones at intellectual pursuit. Apologetics is a noble pursuit. Great stuff. Useful. Powerful. Truth. It's great. It's wonderful. Use it. You know, if that's God's called you to study in that particular area, go for it. It's awesome. And it is important to be able to present people. And the scripture tells us to be ready to make a defense for the things that we believe. The greater insight you have by God's spirit through the scripture, you're no longer abiding in darkness. You have heard his words and you believe. But there are apparently, unfortunately, there is an alternative In verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not believe, 
I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. Not every person who hears the words of Jesus will truly hear the words of Jesus. If you hear the words of Jesus and you attribute them to some other source or to the corrupt minds of men or to some human hustle or purpose, have you really heard the words of Jesus? No. They have not. But notice that Jesus clings to his commission. Here he is to save the world, standing in front of the same people who are going to cry out for his death in short order. And at the same time, he points us to the Lord's intention. Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture in identifying the purpose of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture in identifying the mechanism of God's judgment in, in these last two verses, verses 49 50, last three verses. He who rejects me does not receive my words. He has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is in Athens, uh, standing up on the Areopagus, preaching the gospel to the crazy men of Athens. And he speaks of God's judgment, the judgment that God has intended in Acts 17.31, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. In case you were wondering who that man is. By raising him from the dead. Oh, I know who that is. The assurance of God's judgment is an important part of the gospel. Here in verse 48, he gives us the assurance that those who reject his words will be judged by those same words. So on the one hand, Jesus explains that he has not come to judge the world, but to save it in 47. And at the same time, we recognize that the act of presenting the truth of the gospel necessitates judgment. You can't put the truth out there and have the lie be accepted. The, the truth from God's mouth brings the world into judgment. You don't have to reject it in the extreme. You don't have to stand up on top of your car and say, no, I don't believe in Jesus. You don't have to paint signs on yourself. You don't have to get tattoos about Satan and stuff like that. You don't have to wear t-shirts. You don't have to do that. Failure to consent to the truth of the gospel is rejection enough. In fact, you can spend your whole life telling people, well, you know, that's very interesting. I'll, I'll think about it. Or I'm just, I don't think I'm quite ready yet. You know, one of these days, I'm, but, one, but I'm just, I don't think I'm ready to just quite do that just now. Think of a train coming to take you to the promised land. Either you prepare to board the train or you reject it. No matter what you say, if you do nothing and don't get off the track, you will suffer the consequences. You don't have to do anything to reject the gospel. Rejecting Christ is not receiving his words, not humbling yourself not acknowledging your need. Whatever it is, it is that first and foremost, not receiving his words. 
There may be more or less offensive ways of rejecting Jesus, but that is the cornerstone. Rejecting Christ is not receiving his words. And, and while we're talking about receiving his words, let's mention in passing that receiving the words of Christ means to take up those words and to put them into your life, to do what it says, to put them into practice, to live out the word of God, something that all of us in this room fail at regularly. And we need to continue to seek him and to seek his help in that regard. The reference to the last day here in verse 48, I will judge him at the last day, seems to be a reference to the white throne judgment, the second resurrection, because this is where people will be eternally condemned on the basis of the words of truth. And rejecting Christ is not rejecting Christ alone. It is rejecting Christ. It is also rejecting the Father. 1 John 2.23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And Jesus reemphasizes that point for us in verse 49. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me command what I should say and what I should speak. For I have not spoken of myself. Which Again, this is essentially the calling for any prophet of the Lord. This is the job description. With one notable exception. One, one prophet that has a notable exception to that kind of blanket calling of going and speaking forth the word of God. We find that in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verse 18. The Lord tells Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. I will require it of him. Sounds kind of ominous, doesn't it? Moses must have been impressed. He didn't say, well, what do you mean exactly you will require it of him? I think Moses knew. The pro, this is called, the Jews understood this passage as representing the prophet in caps. Okay, the prophet. And in fact, in the gospel of John chapter 1, as the religious leaders came out to see John the Baptist, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no, I'm not. This is, of course, who Jesus is. Jesus is the prophet. What the Jews didn't know is that the prophet and the Messiah are the same guy. This is Jesus, the Messiah. And what, what is the terrible fate that Christ has commanded us to? What is this terrible situation that he wants us to be a part of? How... Has he forever marred our wonderful plan for all we imagine that we might become and the great power and ability that we have uh, bringing to completion all the wonders of our amazing human ability? What is the terrible fate that Christ commanded us to in verse 50? And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father told me, so I speak. His command is life, real life. Not like here. 
You know, we persuade ourselves that what we have here in this world is life, but it's twisted, folks. It's messed up. And from the time you were a young, very young child, you've been working hard to forget all the twistedness so that you could get up in the morning and have a reasonable perspective going forward, to forget the pain and the destruction and the terrible, terrible, terrible things that happen every day around our lives, not to mention the things we see on television or things that we've heard about. And it's hard work. It's hard work. The wonderful thing, you know, when you have faith in Christ and you have that relationship with God, you, for the first time in your life, get a real counterpoint. You get a real perspective of the fact that there is justice. There is real justice. It's not going to happen in this world necessarily in my lifetime. I don't expect to see justice in my life, but there is justice. And yes, nobody, nobody ever gets away with anything, ever. There is justice, and justice is coming to this place. It is coming, and it is going to be the greatest shock this world has ever seen as justice is revealed in this place. His command is life. Doesn't seem such a terrible thing, does it? What a job our enemy has done to disguise all the good that God has done for us as this horrible injustice and abuse. God, who has only always done for us the very best thing day by day. You know, and so many people, so many people that you will meet look back on their lives and their whole response to the existence of God is, how could there possibly be a God considering I endured this? This happened to me or to my family or to somebody I loved. And so don't talk to me about God because if they could just get past that place, they could see the justice, that it's real, that it is real and he's real. Jesus ends his final public comments to the nation, the nation that he has come to serve by reinforcing. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father told me, so I speak. These are the words of the Father for you. Hear them. God's compassion, his ability to forgive, to to cover the most grievous and destructive offense, is it's got to be one of the most amazing things in the world. I think there may be only one thing that's more amazing than that, and that is the ability of human men to be blind to what God has done. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture in revealing the rejection of men, in revealing the conflict in the hearts of men, in identifying himself with the Father, He is the fulfillment of Scripture in identifying the purpose of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture in identifying the mechanism of God's judgment. God comes to the earth, an earth of broken men and women. It says in Psalm 58, verse 3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. And just as the Lord says of the enemy, In John chapter 8, that when the devil speaks lies, he is speaking his own native language. Now, you won't see that in the New King James, but that's literally what the the original language means. When he lies, he's speaking his own native language. 
25 times in the Gospel of John, from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 21, you will find a phrase that only Jesus uses. He says, most assuredly. If you're reading the New King James Version Bible, it says most assuredly. If you're reading uh, the New American Standard, it says truly, truly. The words that Jesus says in each of those 25 places are the words, amen, amen. He is the only person that does this in the Bible. He, and it only takes place in the Gospel of John. 25 times he says, amen, amen. Now the word amen means, so be it. Let it be so. It is an affirmation of truth. Jesus stands up in front of the people of this world and he says, this is true, this is true. Which is very sad. Because you know, Titus chapter 1 tells us that it is impossible for God to lie. God himself comes into my world and because we are so twisted, he stands up in front of people and he says, this is the truth, this is the truth. And he has to do it over and over and over again. And maybe I think the two most significant times that he he does it, in John chapter 5, verses 24 and 25, he says, Amen, amen, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Amen, amen, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And that is you. Because you were dead. And you heard the voice of the Son of God. And you are alive. Father, we want to thank you, Lord. We want to thank you for, for your grace upon us, Lord. Father, to give us your word, to instruct us with your truth. And Father, to make it accessible to us, Lord, in a real way. We're so grateful to you. And Father, we pray, Lord, that these words would sink down into our hearts, into our minds, Lord, and beyond our minds, into our hearts, Lord, that we would be affected and moved by the truth that you have revealed to us. And Father, that you would strengthen us. Lord, you know the challenges that are before us, coming up tomorrow and the days beyond. Father, Guide us with your Holy Spirit. Strengthen us with this truth. And Lord, use us as your servants that we might be the witnesses of Christ. Father, cause us to surrender ourselves into your hands entirely and completely. And Father, work that work in us that you have intended these many, many days. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would be gracious to us. Count us worthy to escape the things that are coming upon this world that we might be gathered to you, Lord, at the time of your choosing. And Lord, bless and touch the hearts of our family members, Lord. Those who don't know you, we lift them to you right now, Father. We pray for these people, Lord. Draw them to the truth. Place witnesses of Christ before them. Father, cause our lives to be that witness you've intended. We love you. And Father, we thank you. 
We thank you for your, your church, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, you guys.